0: There are moments that we find ourselves in at times that end up revealing our true character. Um, because we often are able to do a good job of kind of hiding some of our flaws, covering them up, right? We can find ourselves in a difficult situation where we want to say something, but we just don't and we, we're nice in that situation, right? We can, we can be patient while standing in line at the DMV, we can smile and wave at people who have heard us or done us wrong. We can bite our tongue when somebody says something that we strongly disagree with. But it doesn't matter how good we are at hiding all of those things or kind of covering some of those things up. The truth eventually comes out. Um. Our true character will be revealed. And, and each person has their own kind of particular temptation, and each temptation has its own kind of event that triggers that temptation, right? And uh, many of you have heard me use this analogy before, and maybe to the point where you maybe wonder about your pastor's walk with Christ. Um, because in general, I'm pretty good at biting my tongue, kind of controlling the words that come out of my mouth, until I start working on a car. And uh, we have a lot of cars, and a lot of cars with a lot of miles on them, which means I work on my cars a lot. And there is just something about working on a car that just gets me going, and I start yelling at every engineer that has ever designed a car, even though they're not there, it doesn't matter, and words start coming out of my mouth that don't normally come out of my mouth, and I find myself repeatedly having to sit on my little wheelie stool in the garage and go, take a breath, calm down, repent, because you should not say those things, repent, ask forgiveness from God, seek forgiveness from Him, take a breath. Keep going forward, right? It's a moment, and, and what we have to realize is that those moments are actually revealing what's actually deep down inside. Right? Here's what Jesus said. This is a hard saying. This is what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles a person. Right? Those words that just kind of burst forth out of your mouth are actually what is deep down in your heart. It's this sin that's still kind of remaining, right? When those words are coming out of my mouth in the garage, that's sin that's still deep down in my heart, that sin that Jesus died for, that's sin that sin that the Holy Spirit's working to kind of root out of my life, but it's still there. And, and it's hard hard for us to grasp that that's still there because we want to believe that it's kind of gone. But the reality is it's there. And, and for you, it's maybe not working on a car, but, but I, like I said, everybody has their one temptation and their one triggering event. For some of you, it's that one person. You get around them and you start feeling things and saying things that you don't normally feel and say, right? Or... Of that one task at work or at home, and every time you do it, it just sets you off, and your true character comes out. And the reality is, you you can't hide these things forever because we can't take care of our sin. We can't cover it up. It, It comes out eventually. The only way, the only way you can get rid of sin is to confess it, repent it, and seek cleansing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And, and I start off that way because what we're going to see in, in the story that we're looking at is that we see the true character of two different people revealed in a moment of kind of intensity. And, and you have to, to get the, to kind of understand what's happening in this passage. We have to make sure we don't forget what happened last week. or the, You know, this is a story. Everything's kind of building on it, Right. And so last week we talked about how the Sanhedrin had made this decision that Jesus needed to die. That's what was best for the nation. He was going to die, and they were committed to it, so they were going to put into action whatever they could to kill Jesus. And then, as a result, Jesus kind of withdraws from Jerusalem and goes back out into the wilderness. But everybody knows Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem because... Jesus always comes to Jerusalem for every single feast. And so that's why we read this. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It's not happening yet, but it's coming up. The Passover is coming up, and many people went from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he's not going to come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let him know, them know, so that they might arrest him. Right? Kind of notice, notice what's happening in Jerusalem. People, people have heard what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead, right? So they want to hear from this guy. And so there's kind of this intrigue. They're w- walking around the city looking for Jesus, but also so there's kind of intrigue building there, but on the other hand, the Sanhedrin, which involves the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're carrying out their plan, right? They make this public pronouncement throughout Jerusalem, if you see Jesus, you have to tell us so we can arrest him, right? It's kind of like what they call like a be on the lookout for Jesus, a cross, right? The police are saying, hey, be on the lookout for this guy, and if you see him, report to us so we can arrest him. And so... There's kind of this tension, and everybody's wondering, like, Jesus always comes for the feast. But maybe he's not going to this time, because if he does, he's going to get arrested. And so you have all of that going on in Jerusalem, but then we read the next part that's happening just a few miles outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. That six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And, you know, so Jesus comes toward Jerusalem before the Passover, but he doesn't go into Jerusalem yet. He comes in six days before the Passover, which most likely puts this on like a Friday, a Friday night. This is probably a, like their typical Sabbath dinner. And when Jesus comes into town, they someone holds a Sabbath dinner and invites Jesus in as a special guest. And we don't actually know if this is held. It's in Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, but we don't know if it's at their house actually. And most likely it's not, which is why they clarify that Lazarus was at the dinner as well. So someone's holding this dinner for Jesus, Martha's serving, Lazarus is there, and on on the one side, it almost seems like there's all of this kind of chaos and turmoil going on in Jerusalem, and just a few miles outside of town, you've got Jesus and Lazarus just kind of chilling, eating supper, having a good meal together, which is also kind of funny because it just kind of nonchalantly says, like, a guy that's been raised from the dead and the guy that raised him from the dead, they're just hanging out, eating a meal together. And everybody wants to know, like, what did Lazarus have to say about that? And the Bible doesn't tell you. So said, you don't, you don't need to know. But, so on the one hand, it's kind of like, no big deal. They're resting. But, but there's tension still at this meal because everyone knows what's, they don't know exactly what's going to happen, but they know something's going to happen, right? Because the Sanhedrin made this public pronouncement. So people in Bethany would have heard that as well. So Jesus knows the Sanhedrin have decided to kill him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they all have heard the pronouncements from the Sanhedrin. They know that that they're looking to arrest him. They probably know that they want to kill him. And so this meal that's leading up to the Passover, everyone has a sense that Jesus is probably not going to be with them much longer. His time on earth is coming to an end, and so it starts putting some pressure on everyone at this meal. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more, but but I just wanted to kind of like take a step out and, and do an aside and say, like, there's kind of two things happening in this passage. One's the main point that I'm going to talk about later on in the sermon, but one of the other just points of this passage is kind of, it's a transitional passage leading us from one stage of Jesus' life and ministry to this final stage of Jesus' life and ministry in Jerusalem. It's kind of shifting gears and kind of transitioning us from what has been happening to what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And it's kind of showing the outworking of some things, but then also setting everything up for what's about to happen in Jerusalem. So we see last week the Sanhedrin had decided they were going to kill him, and then we see them making orders to to find Jesus so they can arrest him, right? And then that's going to make sense what's going to happen in about a week. We also see the city buzz, wanting to find Jesus, looking for him, which is going to explain to us why in a few days when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, there's a triumphal entry for him while he's welcomed in as a king. They, they, they know what Jesus did with Lazarus and that buzz is starting to happen there. The whole passage is, we hear the word Passover repeatedly trying to remind us. This is in the context of a Passover where there's a sacrificial lamb. And John said that Jesus is what? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you've got that in the back of your mind. It repeatedly mentions Lazarus who was raised from the dead. To remind us of his resurrection, but maybe get in your mind to think about, well, will Jesus be raised from the dead. But one of the really main points in here is to point something out about Judas, who's going to play a significant role in what's going to happen. Because in this passage, Judas' true character comes out in a tense moment. Um, it's it 's something you can imagine that he was trying to kind of hide and kind of cover up even in this story you can see he kind of tries to downplay it he tries to cover up what 's really going on, but it comes out right because he he watches Mary come in and in his mind she she wastes all of this oil and ointment over jesus and and it just ticks him off it just triggers him and he just says something that he maybe wouldn't say right he he says why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor right the NIV just helps you understand that 300 denarii is a it's a year's salary right so i always like to help us understand how much money that is so i looked up this week what's the average salary in the united states this might encourage you or this might depress you but it's somewhere in the realm of $50,000 to $60,000. the average salary in the United States right now. But so what in your mind now, Mary just wasted fifty dollars to $60,000 on Jesus' feet, dumping out oil on him. And Judas goes, couldn't that have been used for ministry? Couldn't that have been used for something better? Like something more practical? And he just gets angry. It, it, it triggers him. And John kind of gives us a little bit of what's actually going on. He says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Right, And so you see that Judas is still trying to cover up what's actually going on deep inside his heart. Right, He's trying to pretend like, well, this is for the poor. But really, Judas is saying... You just wasted fifty dollars or $60,000 that I could have had. That I could have used. And Judas is smart enough to know, well, I can't say that to Jesus, because he's not going to receive that well. So I have to try to couch it in like religious terms or care for the poor. So I have to say, we could have used that for the poor. But the reality is, Judas only cared about Judas. And he didn't care about the poor And what we're seeing about Judas, and this is going to explain a lot later, isn't it? That he really is greedy and selfish, and he doesn't actually understand who Jesus is. That's what's deep down in his heart, and it came out here. And and we see that Judas isn't really following Jesus because he understands who he is. He's following Jesus for what he can get out of the deal. Like, I'm going to keep following Jesus as long as I keep getting something out of this. But the moment I stop getting things out of this relationship, I'm going to have to find another way to get something out of it. And if Jesus isn't going to give me what I want, I'm going to use Jesus to actually get what I want, which is money, right? And that explains a lot that that's coming up here. And uh, Ritterboss says this about Judas. He says... Judas, on account of his disappointed expectations and selfish motives, no less sharply assesses the situation, concluding that Jesus' cause is heading for failure. Jesus' stock is losing its value, and Mary's costly display of esteem is money down the drain, right? Judas is looking at it saying, people are getting sick and tired of Jesus. They're going to kill him. He's not going to be around much longer. Like see was how he could use Jesus... For his own purposes. What can he get out of the deal? Mary responds differently. Right? Mary feels the same pressure. Mary is also realizing that Jesus' time may be growing short. She's realizing that. Give him everything I have while he's still here. See the difference. And and we see Mary not only just like, extravagantly pouring out love and adoration to Jesus, but we see humility in there. It's The fact that she comes up and approaches him at his feet. I mean, when they sat at tables, they didn't sit down. They more, like, laid down, and their feet kind of stuck away from the... ...herself to the whole room and say, "'Everybody, look at me! "'I'm going to do something extravagant for Jesus.'" She actually didn't want to draw attention to herself. She kind of snuck in and slid up alongside Jesus and anointed his feet. She didn't want the attention. She didn't want the praise. It wasn't about her. It was about her being able to show Jesus how much she loved him, adored him. And one of the things that um, I was really thinking about this week, and I don't know how many of you remember this because it was quite a while ago. I don't even remember how long ago it was. We did a, we did a sermon series series on uh, the mission statement of our church, right? So the mission statement of our church is that we, we worship the triune God in community as a community for the community, right? Worship is at the core of what we do. It's at the core of when we gather together as God's people. It's at the core of when we go out into the world and, and share the gospel and, and go to work. Worship is who we are. And so I spent a lot of time talking about what is worship, What what does that look like? And one of the things I said over and over and over again is that worship is adoration, submission, trust, and joy. Adoration, submission, trust, and joy to our God. And when we're sharing adoration, submission, trust, and joy to our God, we're worshiping him, whether we're here on a Sunday morning or whether we're at work or whether we're at the lake or whether we're wherever, we're worshiping him. Well, that's what we see Mary doing, right? We see adoration. We see submission. We see trust. We see joy. And she's not only just doing those things a little bit in the presence of Jesus, she's extravagantly worshiping Jesus to the point where we are told that the fragrance filled the room, right? That's trying to help us feel the the magnitude of what she just did. And there's this great line from Ritterboss where he said, no price is too high and no loss too great to show Jesus what she feels for him. That's worship. And, you know, what I love about this is that we kind of see this picture and then John gets back to his usual thing of giving us irony, right? Last week we talked a little bit about irony coming out of Caiaphas's mouth. Well, we we see that today as well. And, you know, Judas kind of freaks out, right? Says, wow, we could have used this for the poor. What in the world? Why are we wasting this? And Jesus responds by saying this, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, I don't know how many different translations of the Bible we have here this morning, but I, almost all of them are going to translate this passage differently. Uh, you already saw it a little bit differently and when Howard read it, um, because this is one of these passages that's really hard to translate. Um, and I don't know how many of you know this, but when they, when they wrote the Greek Bible, all of the words and the letters were jammed together. There's no punctuation, there's no sentences, there's no paragraphs. And so as you're translating this stuff, it's, you have to take some educated guesses. And, and I think this is a good educated guess, but I think there's a better way to translate this that, makes, uh, that kind of fits the broader story of Scripture. Because if this is what Jesus told her, it assumes that she's keeping some of the oil for his day of, the day of burial, right? But the other stories that talk about this she dumped it all out. That's why she wasted fifty to $60,000, right? Like, it doesn't fit that she didn't, she didn't just use a little bit. She used all of it on him. There wasn't any left. And so another possible way to translate this, I don't remember if I put it up there, yeah, is that he's asking more of a rhetorical question, like, leave her alone. Did you expect her to keep this for the day of my burial? And I love that. And I think that fits the story and the context better. But it's kind of a rebuke to Judas as well, saying, Because remember, what was Judas' main, well, external, main reason for being frustrated with this? This is such a waste! And Jesus' response is, Sir, you're saying it would have been more useful for her to wait to show this honor to me till after I'm dead? Isn't it better for her to show this worship for me while I'm here, while I'm in her presence, instead of holding on to this until using all of this up for my burial? And so it's a rebuke to Judas, but there's also all of this irony in it, right? Because Jesus is looking at Judas saying, you know what's about to happen to me. (laughs) You know what's coming. And and you've got all of the Sanhedrin out there seeking to kill Jesus. And then you have Mary, who all she's wanting to do is show Jesus how much she loves him, how much she adores him, just to worship him. But John says, even in that, she's doing something that she doesn't fully even understand. She's unknowingly prophetic because she's anointing Jesus for his death. Now, the story's here, like I said, to kind of transition things, but it's also here to, I think, to cause us uh, to ask some hard questions and maybe to even shake us a little bit. And, and it's here to have us ask, like, which one are we in the story? Right? There's this contrast between Mary and Judas, very clear. And we're supposed to ask us, like, which one are we and how are we worshiping Jesus? Like, do we find ourselves worshiping Jesus more like Mary or, or like Judas, right? Are we worshiping Jesus more for what we can get out of this deal? Or are we worshiping Jesus for who he is? Because we love him, because we adore him, because we submit to him. It's really the same question we were asking a few weeks ago, isn't it? Do you love Jesus for who he is or for what you can get from him? And the way you answer that question changes everything. I know I say that a lot, but, it, but it's true, right? Because if you find yourself only worshiping Jesus for what you can get out of him, right? This picture, this story saying, then you're worshiping Jesus, and this is in quotes, like Judas. That's not a good place to be. And, and if you're only doing it for what you can get out of him, then the moment you don't get out of Jesus what you want from him, you're going to hit the road, I'm done with you. You, You're not giving me what I want. But even worse, you're not just going to walk away from him. You're going to sell him out to get what you want. That's what Judas did, right? Judas will find himself in the position where he'll say, it's better for me to have 30 pieces of silver in my hand than to continue following Jesus. Because that's what I really want. And let me put this in more, because most of, maybe that doesn't ring true with you, but let me put this in a more modern situation. If you only follow Jesus for what you get out of him, you will find yourself repeatedly saying, well, it's better that I keep my job than follow Jesus right now. It's better for me not to lose a year's salary than to follow Jesus right now. It's better for me to have the fancy car or the fancy house than to follow Jesus right now. It's better for me to have this lifestyle than to follow Jesus right now. It's better for me to have this boyfriend or this girlfriend than to follow Jesus right now. And and it all connects to what we said last week is that if, if you're only following Jesus for what you can get from him, then you're going to be always having this pragmatic calculation, like calculating profit and loss. Like, is it worth it to follow him in this instance? Or is it not worth it to follow him in this instance? And that's not worship. And that's not faith. It's actually betrayal. Because true worship, what we're shown in this passage, true worship is worshiping Jesus for who he is. And, and it looks more like Mary, where no price is too high, no loss is too great as we show worship for him. And that means we're willing to sacrifice the fancy car and to drive a bunch of old beaters that you have to fix. I have to remind myself of that repeatedly. Or we have to we have to sacrifice the fancy house or the fancy lifestyle or the particular boyfriend or girlfriend or we have to sacrifice the high paying job or sacrifice because we want Jesus and He's more valuable than any of these other things. Now, you can; it depends on the lifestyle, but, but there are times where you're going to have to choose one or the other. And what are you going to choose? It shows you, you put in that pressure situation and your true character comes out. And the question is, which one is it going to be? And when we worship Jesus for who he is, we're willing to lay down things and sacrifice things that, that make people wonder what in the world is wrong with you. Even Christians will look at you and be like, you don't have to be that crazy. You don't have to like, give that up. Like, that's the... And you're willing to do it joyfully, not grumbling or muttering. You do it joyfully because you just want to adore, submit, trust, and find joy in your God. That's what worship is. And it's not just what worship is. That's what real true faith is. And, and it's why this last line is in here, and it's been totally misunderstood, and, and I should probably preach a whole sermon on it sometime, but this last line from Jesus where he says, the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now there's people who have used this verse to say, see, you're always going to have the poor, we don't have to care for the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. Um, Jesus is just calling Judas bluff right now. (laughs) Because Jesus knows Judas is trying to use religious language to try to cover up his own stuff, and Jesus is looking at Judas in the eye and saying, you know what's about to happen. And you know I'm not always going to be here. You can care for the poor after I'm gone, but you know I'm about to die. And he's looking at Judas saying, are you going to believe in me? for who I am? Or are you going to keep using me for what you can get out of it? Now's your time to make the decision because I'm not going to be around much longer. And that's the question, right? That, that's the question that hangs with us. Jesus is saying, like, are you going to believe me? Are you going to believe in me? Are you going to put your faith in me? Are you going to trust me for who I am? Or only for what you can get out of me? And are you going to believe in him in such a way that you're willing to lay down your life and anything that goes with that to follow him? No price too high. No loss too great. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence recognizing our own weakness and convicted that in our frailty, in our own sinfulness, we do often look to you for what we can get out of you. And we do base our relationship on you, on, on what you've given us in the last week or few days. And so, Father, we confess that to you. We, we repent of it this morning. We're sorry that we try to use you for our purposes rather than give ourselves to you as our God. And so we ask that you would cleanse us You'd forgive us, and that your spirit would move in us in such a way that you would completely transform us, that you would continue to root out that sinfulness that still resides deep down in our hearts, and that that you would transform us so that we would truly worship you for who you are, as the one worthy of all our praise, and that we would worship you with extravagant joy and abundance and trust and submission. And that the world would see that through us and praise and glorify you as well. Father, transform us to go out into the world with a heart that says, no price too high, no loss too great, as we worship you. And all God's people said, Amen.